Welcome to One Sweet Dream, a podcast where we explore the dream that was and is the Beatles. Welcome back. This is part two of our Abbey Road episode. In part one, we discussed Come Together, Something, Maxwell, Oh Darling, Octopus's Garden, Here Comes the Sun, and Because... So next we have the medley, which has been described as a symphonic suite, and I I actually saw it described as a love letter to the Beatles' experience, and I think that's a really, really beautiful way of describing it. I think the medley is really important in terms of, you know, the, the Beatles being constant experimenters and, you know... Innovators. Innovators, and it's wonderful. It's wonderful. George Martin was a big part of this. Yep. Uh, He said, there would be nothing wrong with making a complete movement of several songs and having quotes back from other songs in different keys and even running one song into another contrapuntally, but thinking of those songs in a formal, classical way. He also said that he, quote, tried to instruct them, meaning the Beatles, in the art of classical music and explain to them what sonata form was. Paul was all for experimenting like that. And that's a quote from, um, again, Ken Womack's book, Solid State. I think this is such a wonderful example of Paul's constant openness to trying um, trying new things, which he continues to today. But this idea that there's no barriers to him, that he really, you know, he wasn't right. snobby about like, oh, I'm, we're just going to do the blues or we're just rock and roll, you know, like he was so open to, you know, any form that was innovative and, and new and interesting right? Uh, in terms of music. And so, and that included classical music. And, you know, this was very much, it ended up being very, very much a, a collaboration between Paul and, 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 George, and George Martin. Martin. Yeah. And George Martin was, was Paul's, first sort of instructor in classical music like he he was sort of Paul's first mentor I mean obviously he, he's done several albums of classical music right. so at this point he's a classical composer but in the 60s right when he was a Beatle obviously George Martin was um the first one to sort of ex- explain elements of classical music to him Right. And in a, a huge kudos to George Martin for this and for all of the work that he did. You know, it's, it would be hard to ever, ever give him full credit for what he did for the Beatles. But, you know, uh, right. It, it's just interesting that this is where he was pushing them and Paul was fully willing to take it and run with it. You know, and just a, a, an additional note for George Martin, apparently he found working on this a pure joy and and he loved the results. So. That makes me very happy to know that he was pleased with it. In Solid State, Womack does talk about the fact that Paul had been experimenting with tape loops throughout this time, throughout the 60s. And, you know, he was doing that specifically for the transitions between, say, for example, um, You Never Give You Me Your Money and Sun King. And, you know, so the sounds of the birds chirping and crickets and, you know, that those are tape loops, you know, which is really interesting that he did. Yeah. And... Those you know, are Paul's. So those are thank Paul's. You, Paul. Yeah, yeah. And he he says here that Paul said, "I used to experiment with them, them being tape loops, when I had an afternoon off, which was quite often." So you know, this just shows that Paul at home 
was playing, you know, was was experimenting and playing, you know, on top of writing. Which most Beatle fans, I would assume, or certainly would hope, would would know that by now, that that he did that in 66, 67, uh, maybe even 68. But it's interesting. For me, it was interesting to note that he's still doing this in 1969. Me too. That that's what I found interesting was that it the, you know this wasn't just uh, like something that he was really into for a couple of years that he's continuing to push this this art form to great results. Mm-hmm. They needed that, you know, the medley needed the transitions and you know it flows beautifully. You know, while 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 the medley was not John's baby. John gives Paul credit for conceiving of the medley. Um but we do have evidence that he did get on board early on, at least. Yeah. There's a quote from NME magazine in 1969 where John says, Paul and I are now working on a kind of song montage that we might do as one piece on one side. We've got about two weeks to finish the whole thing. So we're really working on it. So and that quote was from fairly early in the year, like April of 1969. Yeah, that would have been right when they had recorded You Never Give Me Your Money. So they so, had yeah, So they had they the had concept that. of of that fairly early on. Right. You know, from Paul's account that John was not necessarily on board and then when he was invited to participate uh-huh. uh, to to provide some songs, then he did get on board. But then they ended up doing a lot of the songs yeah. the non-John in his, songs were in developed his in his in his absence, right? Yeah. From the start, You Never Give Me Your Money was always slated as the first song. So this is the, the song that John refers to. And that was, I think, started in, in April, you know, as a group. And it was apparently always conceived. Like people think that it's, you know, almost a medley in itself. But apparently it was originally conceived as a multi-part musical composition. And uh, and I think everyone was, all the Beatles were fairly enthusiastic about this oh, well, particular that, it, track. That particular track is... It's a real journey. It's got a little bit of sadness, got about a little wistfulness. It's got, and then it like just straight up rocks towards the end. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I it's got a lot going for it. I it's got really this... good lyrics. It's a very compact song. It is like it tells a whole narrative in the song, and I think that I think maybe it doesn't get the kudos because it's it is part of the medley so it almost seems like well is this an individual song or is this just the first part of the medley you know but yeah. it, it, it sort of exists as part of the medley but also i think as a as an individual song i don't know what the exact lyrics mean but i think that it's just like a pull this pull this tug of war between negotiations and papers and money and they never actually get their real money but this idea that he's He's fighting so hard, and then he says, you break down. To me, is like, that's Paul admitting that that's how he feels. Nobody sees that. He's standing strong, but that's how he feels. Mm. And, he, you know, that I never give you my number. He's kind of saying, you know, I think he's kind of admitting here that he's never giving it all away. But here's the thing with this song, is I think he slips in some really important lines. You know, that this idea that I never give you my number, I only give you my situation. You you see that with Paul in Let It Be. You know, he's talking and talking and talking. He's never actually going to give it all away to John. I think that he's yeah. h- hiding his vulnerability. He's yeah. ne- he's not going to give it all away. And, and I don't see that yeah. as a bad thing. I think that Paul is very right. protective here. Yeah, he's going to get out of there alive. Right. He's not going down with that ship. Right. 
you know, there's something a little bit self-protective and a little bit like, you think you know me, but you don't. But then he's, he, he says, I break down, which to me is sort of an admission that this is really hard on me. Like, I'm breaking down. I'm not giving it all away, but this is killing me. And then to me, the next section about out of college money spent, no future, no money. We've got the sack. It's kind of like he's forecasting all the things that happen that he's afraid of. Holy shit. We're in this massive fight. It's unwinnable. Future's so bleak. We went through all this. We have no money. And then to me, the next section is really Linda. I don't think it's specific in any way. I think this is he's doing what he does. Right, he's right, using yeah, yeah. lyrics to convey this idea that somehow he's jumping in a limo with her and they are getting the hell out of there. That escape. Get, escape. Yeah. Yes. And this idea that I wiped that tear away, like it was awful, he's crying. But one sweet dream came true, like one part of my dream came true, which is that I'd have love and then I'd get out of here. And kind of like, it's a fun journey, I think, because it's so depressing. It's so horrible. And he escapes. Things are fucked up here. It's breaking my heart. I'm breaking down behind the scenes. It's so fucking bleak. We've ruined everything. And I've got one chance of escape and I'm taking it. Let's get out of here. Let's get out to Scotland and get away from this shit because there's no winning. Well, he hits that over and over and over again throughout his career career too i mean like right. freedom and escape <laughs> those are those are some of his recurring themes so often people will say well john's very autobiographical in his songs and you know i love that about him and i don't like about you know McCartney yeah. because he doesn't communicate anything real and yet for me i find paul's stuff so transparently autobiographical his stuff isn't necessarily linear but it's extremely you know between the sound of the music which conveys a lot and i think is really important especially with his music it's just not like he doesn't tell a straightforward story but you can see the themes of his songs are really important in terms of conveying whatever he needs to communicate through the song or whatever he's expressing yeah and you know i think this whole album this whole 1969 is incredible in terms of what Paul's expressing. Yes. But but this long medley is just like a peek into his soul. They put together these fragments of songs, but these fragments of songs are very meaningful in some ways. I do think of them as being connected. I mean, I think that they connect them musically. Um, and I think they tell a story. You Never Give Me Your Money is so much a snapshot of his mindset, their mindset of, you know, I break down, you break down, you know, the, the funny papers, all that kind of stuff. You know, the, the idea of, oh, that magic feeling, nowhere to go, is kind of like such a negative. And then it's transformed into a positive, but only the idea of escape, you know, with Linda. So that sort of kicks it off. Sun King is a little bit warmer to me. But again, maybe it's because Sun is evocative and because they've got, you know, you can hear the pond I, in the background and the chirping. And yeah. The, I love Sun King. Yeah, me too. I think it's much warmer. And it it's connected to them. Like Sun, Sun King to me is, you know, you're ta- talking about Louis XIV and his royal court. And I, I think that they were the Sun Kings of the 60s, you know? Like he's telling the story about the Sun King, but they are the Sun Kings. And it's kind of a celebration like that's the ultimate view of the Beatles is everybody's laughing everybody's happy everybody everything's sunny you know 
Yeah, that sounds like a low dosage tripping uh, on a sunny yeah. day. <laughs> yeah, like yeah, like that's, that's like best case scenario of the Beatles is like you're tripping and everybody's happy and you know yeah <laughs> it's lovely and the then they go into it's, sort of the magical language yeah that, you know it's, it's like 1967 like, yeah totally exactly it's like a and paradise that's kind of like it's very unjohn there's not an, the aggressiveness that so many of songs have from this period like if yeah. there's a sweetness to this you know yeah and and you're right i mean this song was finished with paul you I mean, know, this, I guess, would be the last Lennon-McCartney collab at this time. I mean, there, it has a bit of a, you know, nostalgic vibe to it also. Apparently they smoked a, smoked a joint and had fun writing the made-up lyrics. In Walmack's book, there's the, an interesting detail, which was apparently the, the song was to have been called Los Paranoias, which, you know, as he points out, probably had some... Um, significance to them because apparently that was one of the names the Beatles floated uh, you know as a, as a potential yeah. band name before the Beatles um, like in the early 60s yeah in the early 60s and you can see you know there there's an audio which I'm sure many of our listeners have heard where Paul is I think he's playing Step Inside Love and then he switches to Los Paranoias Los and Paranoias they, <laughs> exactly. yeah, yeah. And they start laughing. Like, cl- clearly, there's some... It's impromptu. Yeah, it's, you know, and it's kind of like a little shared, you know, it's an inside joke f- for right, them. Right, right. And so I just think it's interesting that this song was to have that title. And then apparently, <laughs> you know, Paul and John created the um, gibberish, you know, sort of fake romance language that is in the middle of this song. And it was... John wanted to get Los Paranoias into that, and he kind of lamented afterwards or commented afterwards that they never actually, <laughs> even though they had a lot of fun doing it. That's amazing. They, for, they forgot to actually <laughs> that, include that. That word. is su- that is such a stoner story. <laughs> <laughs> oh Wait shit! We forgot to put Los Paranoias in it. <laughs> it's worth noting that this the name of the song has some significance. You know, we talked about "Come Together" as potentially a song that was to bring them together. Again, John's bringing a song that has some kind of nostalgic value, but I just wonder if, you know, this was kind of a, an affectionate thing or. Yes. Well, generally when you hearken back to your teenage years with somebody uh, for an in joke from when you were teens, it's like, yeah, yeah, that's a, that's an attempt to reconnect. And And in this case sounds like a successful reconnection. At least, yeah. at least temporarily, you know. Temporarily, and the song is great. And, um, you know, it's uh, it's unfortunate that <laughs> we don't have those paranoia in those words, but it, it worked out anyways. But, That's you know, adorable. it's a good example of, yeah, <laughs> of them getting along during this period. And even though they have all these standoffs and we think that they're going through all these issues, it's like sometimes they can't help but connect, you know. Well, and it also speaks to the fact that, like, and Paul said this a million times, it's like no matter what we're going through, music is would always connect us they're ready to stab each other but they can still smoke a joint and write like a great song you know it's like um shank called it repair they have that moment on the rooftop where john forgets the lyrics and he looks over and then they just go right back into the chorus like nothing happened i think that and they constantly have these moments of repair during 69 like they have the ballad of john and yoko they have the rooftop 
it throughout the yeah, that's hits. true. You see, you see them. I think the whole trying to go back to their original songs is and songs they loved is repair. Yeah, periods. It's like a reconnection to things they loved and when things were good. It's kind of shedding sort of like the the thinking that's gone on top of that and going back to that period of yeah, this is why we're together. This is why we love each other. Right. And so you see moments of this, and I honestly think that if they hadn't had people around them, specifically on John's side, that were really pulling them apart, you know, specifically Klein, that they could have repaired. You know, yeah. they could have. There was so much there there. Right. That yeah. If they didn't have these counter narratives that were pulling them apart and that were making John, and also John's heroin addiction, making them paranoid. And making him probably unknowable in some ways to Paul, you know, Paul's not mm-hmm. going through that. So, but I do think that that's a great example of repair. Well, and again, one of the big questions that's always asked: why couldn't ha- why couldn't they have just just agreed to break up with the caveat that they could come back together at any time? Like maybe something will happen in the future. You know, like let's just take a break. Let's just take a couple years off. You know, let's do different things. Let's get settled in our in our marriages. If Paul, you want to start a family, whatever, you know, maybe let's try this again a year from now or two years from now or or whatever. Why couldn't they have done that? I mean, they could have gotten back together once every two years and written number one hits till the rest of for the rest of their lives. You know. Yeah. Well, I think if the, if the passion hadn't been so intense and the hurt so intense, then they, and, and the, you know, all the feelings, that's the thing is that I think that that underestimates if they were business partners, they could have done that. It was a passionate union. Next is Mean Mr. Mustard. If Maxwell is a granny song, what the fuck is Mean Mr. Mustard? you know also like isn't that a character song like i picture someone in like with a monocle walking around or something totally i got 100 picture somebody with a monocle spinning his cane with a cane and a monocle for sure the the mr peanut kind of like like that like the monopoly guy Exactly. I swear to God, it's the Monopoly guy. But, but um, seriously, I don't know why that's not grady music. I'm going to tell people from now on, Mean Mr. Mustard is my favorite song. <laughs> that would be hilarious if somebody, you know, I just dare somebody to quote that as their favorite. <laughs> he sleeps in the park and shaves in the dark. Hello, it's the best song. <laughs> As soon as the counting came in, we were together. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? One, two, three, four. Oh, boom, boom, that. You know, we all did it. We were still musicians, and we still put on 100%. Yeah. It's a bit... But the songs were short. <laughs> yeah. <You know? laughs> yeah. Well, that's when, you know, John had only write a verse, and, you know, Paul would have something else, and yeah. we'd just string it all together. You know, I keep calling it, like, the, the B-side of the album. Yeah. You know, with polythene, Pam, and bathroom window and all yeah. that. That's my favorite. You came through the bathroom window, is amazing. Yeah. You know, I, I think it's interesting, the very end of that song, I was thinking about, you know, the one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, all good, good children mm-hmm. go to heaven. I wonder, I think it's just a, a convenient bridge, but it's also, there's also like a prayer element to that, you know? Mm. 
It's like a children's prayer, which I actually see throughout it. There's that. And then later on when Paul in the golden slumbers, like he's telling us a yeah. bedtime story. He's soothing yeah. the audience. He's soothing himself and the Beatles. But, you know, Sun King is like a snapshot of the Beatles at their happiest. Like it is to me, them in 1967. Yeah. And it's interesting that John and Paul both both wrote this or Paul had a hand in helping John with this. You know, it is, I think it's kind of sweet that, you know, kind of John's warmest contribution is, is the two of them. And then me, Mr. Mustard to me is connected because again, it's this theme of money. You know, mm. it's like J- John wrote this book before, but Paul's like, you never give me the money. And then me, Mr. Mustard is, is like coming back, know, creeping around. Yeah. Yeah, and it's like, I, you know, they're fighting all these businessmen in the city that are trying to get Northern songs. I just think it's like underneath it, there is a tie to their situation. Um, whether or not he specifically meant that or it was just a, you know, lying, a song lying around. I, I tie it to their situation, that there is notions of being fighting over money and people being cheap and holding money and that kind of thing. And then that goes into Polythene Pam which it's like a really quick snapshot of Liverpool or like a little reminder of Liverpool. Hmm. Like in, in the midst of this, all of a sudden it's like um, a little harken back to Liverpool life. The, the thing that stands out to me about that is the, um, she's so good looking cause she looks like a man and she's like, you should see her in drag. He says that about Yoko all the time. Is that like, I like her because she's like a guy it's didn't true, he? Actually. He said that said to her once, like, you know why I like you? Because you're like a bloke in drag. In drag, yes. <laughs> okay, John. Yeah, there's a, there's a kinkiness to this song that's light and playful, you know. And but in and to me that the connection there is Polythene Pan is kind of a this sexy erotic song, and then it goes into she came in through the bathroom window, which is a snapshot of the craziness of be the life. Be, yeah, yeah. yeah. The rock star life. Like, yeah, there's exactly like women crawling through vents and to get know, to like, them. Exactly. Exactly. Hiding in room service carts. <laughs> exactly. Which is laundry bins. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and that to me is a snapshot of like Beatlemania or, you know, Cavendish Avenue where there's just women like yeah, exactly. hanging out the doors. And, you know, like he Paul's says that, life that he's only given up like a month ago. <laughs> Like, it's all of a sudden a snapshot of, like, oh, the craziness of Be The Life. If if Sun King was them at their, you know, most relaxed, most benevolent. And then there's the shot of, like, but this, there's the reality of business. And then all of a sudden <laughs> yeah, yeah. there's this, you know, there's this the beat of mania and there's these women around. Like an, like an odd little recap of the mania they've it lived is. through. All of a sudden it's the mania. And then he's decided it's time to take a bow and to say goodnight, you know? Yeah. And that that's, comes in with golden slumbers. Like, it's been crazy, and now he's just quieting it down. <laughs> sort of, sort of. You know, yeah, like, yeah. there's the, the beautiful golden slumbers. I think one of the, the stories that is often mentioned is the fact that Paul applied some of the lyrics from the Thomas Decker poem to the song, but it's actually only the chorus, and he only took a few of the lines from that and applied it to the chorus, and, and he changed them slightly. What's interesting is that the Golden Slumbers, Fill Your Eyes, is actually it's a lift from the Thomas Decker poem. However, the once there was a way to get back homeward is his own lyrics. It's Paul. 
Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, the fact that he says once there was a way to get back homeward, it's kind of heartbreaking in some ways, you know, as is the music. And it's kind of like there's no solution now. You know, there is no way to get back homeward now. And so he just sings the lullaby. You know, it's kind of like just a soothing. It's kind of like you're unsafe or, you know, there's something awful that you can't explain to a child and you can't really say that it's going to be okay. I hear it as like, I don't have a solution to this and I can't fix it, but I just want you to know I'm here. Yes. You know, he said at one point, he sort of compared it to a fairy tale and he said he, he found the words very restful. So there was something like in the chaos and the sadness of not being able to get back homeward, that this kind of was the nicest alternative. But let me distract you with this or lull you with this. You know, because it was such a gentle theme, he wanted to have a strong vocal at the chorus. And, you know, it's a little bit surprising sometimes that he sings it so beautifully and quietly. And then the really tender part of it, he sings with kind of this growl. The harsher part about there's no way to get back home, he sings that quietly and gently. His instincts are so good. They're so amazing. In in terms of keeping things interesting, and on your toes, and and like we said before, this this is a song where there is the dissonance between, you know, he's saying he's delivering a really hardcore message with a very soft vocal, but that works incredibly well. And then it, it jumps immediately to carry that weight, and it's kind of like, okay, now we've got a legacy, now we've got to carry, you know, this is the end, and we're going to carry this for a long time. You know, if they're wrapping up, that you know, it's just a very prescient statement that this is going to be something that they all carry oh for sure it's a huge burden they they all struggled with it i don't know necessarily if he even sees it's a burden it's but it is something that they all carry with them but certainly he knew even subconsciously um one of the songs i got really into actually when i was listening uh to this album before we did the podcast was the end after the power chords, it's like they're sort of go. It's like they sort of fall backwards into the drum beat, mm-hmm. and it's, it's very cool. No, it's a, I agree. It's a, it's that it ends up being so exciting. You know, it's it's so good yeah. that they did that. That after Golden Slumbers, and carry that weight. That all of a sudden, it's I don't feel depressed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's got a lot of like Beatle energy. It does. He really had the choice of you know how do we end this? Do we end up being more symphonic? And they took it back to the roots with, you know, with doing the, the guitar duels or, you know, the three of them playing guitars and giving Ringo his moment in the sun, which, you know, was so cool and so amazing. Yeah. Ringo, who is a star, lives obviously, but he's a superstar. And then the three of them playing guitars, it's just so sweet. It is. It's, it's, it's inspired. It is inspired. Like, it is such a nod so this is our roots, this is who we were. You know, there's honestly, like, I don't think that there was a better way they could have ended it with yeah. that. And, and, you know, and Jeff Emmerich, you know, in his book, he comments the fact that they were like little kids when they were recording that, you know, just like they were, it was, it was very joyful. Yeah. And, and I love that, although it's yeah. very sad, because really that's what they could have been if they could have figured shit out. Yeah, yeah. But, and then Paul says that he wanted to end with a couplet like Shakespeare did. And, you know, he wrote one of his best lines, you know, like that was truly a moment of inspiration for Paul. Yeah. And it's really hard to imagine that, that people think that Paul didn't know 
you know, even subconsciously, that he wasn't taking a bow there. Can we please stop pretending that? I mean, you know what, he did pitch the fact that they could go on tour, but I do think that maybe that that was, at the very least, he saw that as an end of an era. In writing a proper goodbye and ending to the Beatles, I suspect it would have been hugely emotionally depleting because even if he's fighting it, he is coming to terms in some ways with the end of the Beatles. Even if it's just subconsciously, he's writing the end. He's thinking, okay, we need a couplet to summarize our whole journey. Yeah. And which he does. And it would be exhausting. Of course he was exhausted and just like depleted, as you said, at the end. Yeah. And not just like physically depleted, emotionally depleted. And I think Ringo, you know, saw that it was coming. And George, we see in 70, he's still saying that he would be working, he would work with the Beatles. Like, I don't think that George took it seriously, and neither did John, that this really could be the end. Whereas Paul, whether he wanted it to or not, was accepting it, said goodbye properly. And as we've discussed before, it's like with these great Greek composers in the past when they've written a great symphony that there's this period afterwards where they're almost like they've given a part of their soul to it and they need time to recover. And I feel like he gave it everything. He says in 70, in 70 or 71 that he could see the end of the Beatles coming. Of course. And, you know, so he could see it. The work probably sustained him. And it was kind of like he knew he had to end it well when you are involved in a creative process, you're driven by the vision, by the inspiration. And so he probably busied himself with that until they were finished and until, you know, Abbey Road was finished and in production. You know, I think that that, at that point with Paul, having just written the long goodbye, having had a baby, being sleep deprived, and probably, like you said, kind of bereft of he's just left it all on the floor that you can see how that would have created a, an emotional low for him. I just think that would have had a really deep effect on his psyche. I don't understand how that's not the main focus of the story of Abbey Road. Yeah. And also, you know, that to, to give him credit for having the grace and the class to ensure that they ended properly you know, and to have rallied everybody to, you know, put out something beautiful and worthy of their legacy. Everybody, everyone is shining at maximum capacity on that album. It really is a great album for everybody. It is. It is. I, the only reason I put extra emphasis on Paul is that I think that he was the one that drove them to do it. We've got Paul participating on every single song and, and, and actively yeah. creatively participating. He put in that extra effort. He's the spiritual leader album. of that album. He's on, he's spiritually like giving a plus plus effort on every single song. Yeah. Yeah. I think that, I think that George and, and Ringo also gave it a, a huge a plus effort as well, but you know, Paul's driving it. I agree. You know what we haven't discussed is You Never Give Me Your Pillow. Yeah, let's talk about that. In the middle of Carry That Weight, it's really the pinnacle of the medley. You know, he brings back the theme of You Never Give Me Your Money. 
And he brings these four lines in. I never give you my pillow. I only send you my invitation. And in the middle of the celebrations, I break down. It becomes a very important statement. Right. Within the medley. You know, so it's worth looking at. Is he admitting something? Is this an especially important part of the song? I never give you my pillow. I only send you my invitations. To me, that sounds like a tease of some sort. I personally, I take I take pillow as um, like a co-sleeping. Like invitation to me sounds sexual. A celebration sounds like a party. Yeah. To me, it sounds like it could be. It's intimate anyways. It, it know, sounds like, like, right, intimate, right. Not necessarily sexual, know, but like. Yeah. Like somebody who you invite into your bed, even to sleep with you is like an intimate thing. Right. Exactly. That's how I, that's how I take it. For me, that lyric is like a um, a lack of follow through. Like he's copying to a lack of follow through of some some kind. But the the fact that he breaks down suggests that this is hurting him too. You know, like, I agree with that. Yeah, that's just my personal read. Pillow doesn't sound like comfort to me. It sounds like intimacy rather than yeah. comfort. Yeah, I agree. I, I agree. It's. Comfort would be like a Band-Aid or... Yeah, or a hug or... A washcloth or something. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. This section is such an important part of the medley. It is. And it's at such a pivotal moment that it's got to mean something. Right. Yeah. So if he's going to confess something, what would it be? I mean, the, the notion of pillow, you know, I never give you my pillow is, is intimate. And so... Potentially, this could be referencing an issue that we know that Paul has, that many people have mentioned, that it's really hard to get to know him deeply, like there is a bit of a wall around him, and that, you know, that he's pretty closed. And so, you know, this may be an issue with him providing a level of intimacy to people who want it, that it's frustrating for them, and it's frustrating for him, too. Right. To me, that it still sounds like he has. He's not moving. He's got a definite like point of view. So, which I think is the part That's that right. would would infuriate me if I heard somebody that I wanted to deliver. It's just like, oh, you're just going to give up. Well, that's what I'm saying. If I'm still waiting for something, yeah. If you and he's yes. like, I'm never going to give that. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> right? And it's really hard on me. It's just like oh, I'd be like, you. fuck you. Yeah, exactly. I guess that's it then, huh? Yeah, I guess that's it. Guess so that's how from... we're going out. But the thing is that they recorded this without John. Golden you know, Slippers so... and Carry That Weight or just Carry That Weight? Both of them. They were done yeah. before John showed up. Mm. So he would have just heard this. Oh, God, that's that's harsh. Uh, you know, I don't know if he came back and listened to what they had recorded or not. Probably not, but like at some point he's going to hear the, the whole medley put together. And I'd be curious, like, how did he react to it? Well, I think it's interesting to think about how the medley would have affected John as well. You know, we, we sort of, Paul has gone through this emotional journey with the medley and he's delivered it. And his partner, John, is... You know, he participated in the medley, but, you know, a lot of the the deep emotional stuff is coming from Paul in this. And one of the things that occurred to me was that 
the notion of abandonment is it looms very large in John's life based on his childhood, right? Yeah. So I think it's just worth thinking about if John, you know, they recorded a lot of the medley prior to John even being in the studio, then he watched them record the next section, which he did not participate in. Um, and then he did obviously participate in his own songs and, and the end and the guitar uh, duel and all that. But then when he's sitting down and hearing this, Paul is saying a goodbye, both from him and from the group. I just wonder how much that might have triggered John in terms of being panicked. You know, he's, he's hearing this message. John pays attention to what Paul's communicating. He's being told that Paul is basically walking away and saying goodbye. You know, I think it would have had a tremendous impact on him emotionally, whether or not he knew it or not. I can only imagine myself like working with a partner that was writing the end without us discussing with it. I, I think anybody would be insecure hearing I this. mean, I, I've never heard anybody even give a moment's thought to how powerless John would feel in that situation. Right. How emotionally devastating it could have been for him. And it probably was. Regardless of what you think their relationship was like at that time, I don't think John ever likes to be left by people. Right. And in that situation, the one power move that you always have if you are afraid that you're going to be left is what? Leave first. Right. So we should really think through John's point of view in this scenario. Yeah, John's feelings in reaction to the situation, have been really underexplored. They've been unexplored. Unexplored, been yes, yes. Unexplored. Yeah. But it's really important. You know, this is a really pivotal time. Exactly. Yeah. I think that it's revelatory to actually think that about this scenario, that, you know, he's being presented with songs that really convey a message. And so we can hypothesize about what he's feeling, which I think is good to do. You know, that's as much as we know is we can hypothesize about it. What we do know for sure is how he's reacting at the time. And um, I'm sure he's hurt by this, but he's not really acting sad at this time. You know? Well, I, I don't think it's just that he would be sad, like as in moping, you know, moping around or anything. Yeah. Um, I think he would be s sort of emotionally devastated at first like, like just a, as a knee-jerk reaction, right. he would would not be able to not feel hurt and sort of rejected and, you know, devastated in, in just on a micro, just on a reflexive level. Yeah. That would be his emotional reaction. And then I think he, that would immediately turn to outrage. Yeah. And, and anger. Yeah. Like, I think he, that that feeling would quickly, quickly pivot into, yeah. like, you want to leave me? Yeah. How dare you? <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, fuck you. You think you're going to leave? I'm going to leave you. Right. Yeah. How fucking dare you? Who do you think you are? You're going to walk out on me. Right. And here's the thing is that Paul has said that at some point, John became very suspicious, you know, that started treating him a little bit differently. I just wonder if something like this could have been the most detrimental in terms of, you know, just John thinking, oh, 
you actually could fucking walk away. And we talked about this, like the worst, probably the worst thing for John to believe is that Paul could and would be okay. That would be, that I think would be the most outrageous thing. Like it's, it's one thing, you know, if John leaves Paul, hurts him, humiliates him, trashes him, you know, ruins his career and Paul is devastated. That's one scenario. That's a manageable scenario. The unmanageable scenario is where Paul goes, all right, you know what? let's just be done with this shit and walks away and is fine and continues to make hit records without John. Like that's, that's an unbearable situation. Right. More that probably explains the scenario much better. And it's more consistent with his MO because we're always asking that, like, what is, what is fueling his behavior? Because he seems to be aggressive. Remember when we talked about his reaction to the Let It Be movie, the first thing he did was cry. And yep. then, like that, as he described in Lennon Remembers, when he was talking about it, he was like, well, I was sad. And then, then he's all pissed off. You know, it's like he's sad for a second, and then he quickly pivots to anger. He starts complaining and bitching. Like, just that paranoid garbage. Like, the whole Paul, the whole thing was set up for Paul, and everybody's against me, and the whole crew was, was conspiring against mm-hmm. me and Yoko, right, you know? Right, like, right. The first emotion was was pain but he doesn't dwell on that it's like that is his pivot immediately and i think that that could be the situation here because from this point forward he's much more aggressive to paul and and so right well here's the thing is you know we have to apply our best our best methodology to it we've got like we can't there's no way we can know what his internal thoughts were but but we have to at least walk through it and try to figure it out. Right. Because yeah. we're, you know, we're trying to figure out how things got from like, Oh, we made this great album yep. to all go into shit within three weeks. Right. right. Exactly. So I think it's reasonable to conjecture that maybe these messages he's getting from Paul's music could have an effect on his mental state. Yeah. And maybe fueling his actions going forward. Okay. We've just discussed Paul's final messages on the album. So what was John's? I mean, can you imagine John wanted to end with I Want You, She's So Heavy? Imagine if that were the end of the album. The last song we're going to talk about is I Want You, She's So Heavy. And in some ways, it's the simplest song on the album. But... um... We believe the song conveys some potentially important and relevant thoughts. So we mentioned that I Want You sort of existed on its own yeah. before She's So Heavy. Right, which we heard in the Let It Be tapes. Which we heard in the Let It Be tapes, and it was sort of more energetic and sort of fun, I think. Right. I don't know if fun is the, the, the precise word. <laughs> right. It was funner. Yes, yes. It wasn't as, it wasn't as dark. You know, one of the things that I find... Uh, intriguing about I Want You, She's So Heavy, is that we've got these fragments of songs in the uh, the medley from John, you know, little snippets of thought, and because it doesn't really end, you know, and come together, although we think it has meaning, is also, you know, his gobbledygook, but this is the only thing that he says emphatically on the album how people talk about this song is it's constantly referred to as 
John's sexual obsession with Yoko. Which is fine if that's your interpretation. But that's not how it's described. It's described as if John said this was about his sexual obsession with Yoko, which he didn't say. He specifically said, and Lennon remembers, that She's So Heavy is about Yoko. Which, you know, again, it could be seen as a nitpick, right? But he specifically called it that for whatever reason. And he specifically said that part was about her. She's so heavy. Mm-hmm. Versus the, versus, because like you've said, there's two parts to this song. The first part is in the second person, directly talking to somebody. I want you. And then he says, she is so heavy. Yes. And again, it, this is, it's something that he also does in um, Don't Let Me Down, but it's not something that he tends to do a lot. Right. It's like he does it twice in this four-month period. Which is just um, notable. It's just notable. Now, the context for Lennon Remembers, for those who haven't listened to the joyful three full hours (laughs) of it, um, John's very erratic, and he skips around from thought to thought. So I don't know how these thoughts are connected, but I'm just going to read the whole thing. The question is, what songs really stick in your mind as being Lennon-McCartney songs? John replies, I want to hold your hand from me to you. She loves you. I'd have to have the list. There's so many trillions of them. Those are the ones in a rock band. You have to make singles. You have to keep writing them plenty more. We both had our fingers in each other's pies. I remember that the simplicity on the new album was evident on the Beatles double album. It was evident in she's so heavy In fact, a reviewer wrote of She's So Heavy, he seems to have lost his talents for lyrics. It's so simple and boring. She's So Heavy was about Yoko. When it gets down to it, like she said, when you're drowning, you don't say, I would be incredibly pleased if someone would have the foresight to notice me drowning and come and help me. You just scream. And in She's So Heavy, I just sang, I want you, I want you so bad. She's so heavy, I want you. Like that. I started simplifying my lyrics then on the double album. What's interesting to me here is how he describes himself as drowning. Yes. It's an important important thought in this whole period. John talks about boats and about drowning. And And help me. That's the thing. If somebody could please notice me drowning and come and help me. You just scream. So it definitely implies like something is wrong. Right. He brings this song up for no discernible reason in response to the question, what songs stick in your mind as Lennon McCartney songs? I think that that's a clue that that his mind is making some kind of a connection. Yeah. Between Lennon and McCartney. And this song that is not a Lennon McCartney creation, I mean, it, it was still fell under that, but it is something that he wrote on his own, own, but there is some connection in his mind. You know, sometimes he'll be asked about something and he'll answer in a way that seems disconnected. But I think there is a connection in his mind. But I think when he goes off into a tangent, they relate and they're connected. So this particular quote once we looked at it, it was a bit of a flag to us. So we were like, okay, let's pull it apart a little bit. 
he says he's drowning and he connects it to Lennon McCartney somehow. So let's go ahead and play that out and let's see what possible connection that could have. And the first one was specifically the metaphor of drowning and of boats. The idea of drowning is something that John has in interviews that he's given over time, has alluded to before. Both of those notions come up, drowning and boats, and, and obviously they're related. First of all, the, the idea of boats, we've touched on this a couple of times, but you know, the fact that he was on a boat called Paul and then a boat called Yoko suggests that he's riding boats. What that suggests to me is that John, as powerful and brilliant as he is, you know, that he's not entirely independent. Like, that John mm-hmm. needs to ride a boat. He needs to be carried, as in, it's not like John says, and I swam to shore. He says he, he was drowning. And so there is a notion that he needs a boat to save him, that on his own, left to his own, he will drown. Right. Well, either he fell over or he was pushed over. I mean, he, do, he doesn't specifically say that he jumped. No, no, no. You're right. It's like he was on one boat and then he was on the other boat. And then he does convey this notion that before he was high and dry with Yoko, he was drowning. So presumably, if we put John's crazy logic together and sort of assume that he was, because he says that he was originally on the boat called Paul, Mm -hmm. and that he was drowning, that, you know, it's worth thinking about why is John drowning with Paul? Right. He's alluded to this. He's alluded to, at this period, he was in the middle of the universe. There's this notion that he is... You know, he's cut. Going under. He's going under. And then he said that he, at this time, he felt no good, that he couldn't do anything, that he was unseen. And that's when Yoko came along and saw his genius and that she was the answer. And presumably she saved him because he became high and dry when he was with Yoko. But here's something that, that that's never really discussed is, A, that Paul was a boat for him, you know, that Paul was a strength. And was carrying him to some extent. Uh I don't necessarily mean creatively, but I think this is how much he depended on Paul. But but then what happened so that he's drowning? That's the question. And as we will discuss in a future episode, shortly after John makes the divorce statement in the meeting, like within days, he gives an interview to one of Paul's good friends, Barry Miles, and he says that in that time period when, and this is when John dates the split, as it were, between him and Paul. Yeah, yeah. He says at that time, he was suffering and he felt no good and he felt like he wasn't contributing and he felt like he wasn't creative and all that. And he specifically says, I know Paul wasn't, Paul was full of confidence. Yeah. So to me... Because John is so explicit about that's his perception of what was going on at the time, I don't think he and Paul are drowning together. No. I think John's perception is that he is drowning and Paul is continuing to sail. Right. And, you know, whether Paul, you know, (laughs) he doesn't totally explain the metaphor, but if Paul is a boat, presumably he is afloat when John is drowning. And, you know, 
we don't really know, but you're right that that's the distinction is that he is alone in the drowning. And so why right. is, why is dr- John drowning when he's with Paul? We know at the time that he's referring to, which is 68, that, um, you know, at the beginning of the year, again, just to hit on this point that Cynthia said that John needed the Beatles more than they needed him. And so he's got a neediness at right. that point. That- which John confirmed, by the way. That's worth repeating, too. It's not that it's a, Cynthia didn't say it and John t- um, contradicted right. her. Yes. He agreed. <laughs> he agreed. Exactly. So this is just a statement for all the bullshit of John was done. No, that's not the situation. This is the situation in 68. He's needy, more needy of the Beatles than they are of him. And, and he's aware of it. He's aware of it. And for some reason, he goes down at this point and feels like, you know, that he's not being seen, that he's he's no good. And we sort of wonder what's going on at this point. You know, what is Paul not delivering to him? Right. I don't know if it's inattention, if Paul was distracted at this point, if he was emotionally unavailable at this point. You know, there's something that John did not feel safe and protected with Paul at this point because he feels like he's drowning. And I think we can also conclude that moving forward, like throughout sort of the rest of John's life after the breakup and for Paul's life as well, John is hurt and angry at Paul and Paul is sad and seems to feel guilty. Absolutely. To us, that is what they're what they communicate and what their behavior suggests is and and what they've expressed yes yeah you're right i mean just blatantly this is what they've expressed um but also this is repeated in in the dynamics i think between them that's right and here's the thing is i think a lot of authors and and you know people in the fandom or whatever they recognize that on some level either consciously or, or subconsciously they recognize that that is the dynamic and i and even though none of us know what exactly is at the core there i think authors have sort of decided that that means paul's at fault for something even though they fail to acknowledge that john needs and cares for paul like they recognize that john's angry so they just sort of assumed that it must be some sort of shortcoming on Paul's part. He must have done something. What, what we're saying is maybe it was that Paul didn't do something. Right. Yes. Well, I think you're right. That's even with the Northern Songs episode, we were trying to say that they, they're grasping because they don't know. There is a sense right. that Paul let John down in some way right. or hurt John, and there must be something awful he did. There's, which there's I, which I do understand, which I do understand. But my point is like, if that's the position you're going to take, you need to back it up with something. You can't just go hard on Paul for doing something that you can't explain what it was. Right. You know what I mean? Like, right. And, and at least acknowledge that John really cared because that's, in my opinion, what goes unset in a lot of these is there's like, well, Paul must have done something wrong, but then John was only thinking about Yoko anyways. Like there's this weird disconnect or inability. And you can't have both. You can't have both. Exactly. Like if John's really hurt, that means he really cared about Paul. And And he's looking for something that Paul, for whatever reason, did not deliver on. And so 
you know, we've discussed this. I mean, we don't we don't know. Unfortunately, that's a missing piece of the puzzle. Paul is never given the respect in terms of his role in John's life, of what an important role he plays to John. Right. And in terms of fulfilling certain emotional needs for for John. And I think that maybe at this point, like John maybe needed reassurance or intimacy or a feeling of closeness while he's going through something, you know, emotionally that Paul just wasn't or didn't know how to fill. And I suspect, right. I suspect that Paul may not even be able to fill it. Like this may be coming from John's childhood of, you know, we've said before, we don't want to just do the easy out of John's childhood, but I do think that John's parents leaving probably left him with a constant pit of, I'm no good. People will leave me, you know, Mm -hmm. this sense. And I think that for a long time, Paul being as devoted as he did, filled that, you know, like was able to meet that need that he, somebody so special and amazing was focused and thought John was special and amazing. And put him first. And and put him first. As no one ever had for John. Right. Exactly. Like, like John doesn't have a parent that's the center of, he's not the center of the universe for a parent, but Paul almost did that for him. And so I just wonder if once Paul starts to get involved in his own life and more involved in running the Beatles and Apple and engaged, whether he took his eyes off of John and that just scared the shit out of John. You don't love me or you don't care as much or you may be thinking of leaving when that actually wasn't the case, but that is something that he panicked about. And so that all this may have been triggered by... John's own thinking, you know? Right. And maybe any any attempt on John's part to get confirmation from Paul that that wasn't the case, maybe was something that Paul just couldn't process or or, or couldn't, like you said, just, just couldn't provide. He just didn't know how to provide that kind of reassurance. Right. So he ends up, John ends up with somebody who will be by his side 24-7. You know, he... And who is less famous than him and devoted to their joint cause. So he's got a lot more reassurance with Yoko. But it seems like at this point, he still has a neediness. And personally, I think the neediness, I mean, he's also on heroin. That's insatiable too. You know, you're, you're always going to want more drugs. You're always going to want more yeah. love. You know, there's sort of like layers of neediness. But I, I do think that he still has a neediness for Paul to fulfill something, Mm -hmm. you know, and this could be a festering wound with John. It's like, we don't know whether or not this story actually happened. This is kind of disputed, but in one of the stories about Julia, where, you know, when it was the battle between the two parents that John chose his father, hoping his mother would chase him. That's kind of like a repeat of this story that if he thinks that Paul is losing interest or walking away, well, well, or how about this? I mean, Julia actually did once she got an, a new family. Uh, you know, John was forgotten, right? Yeah, or she put moved aside. on with the yes. other with the, with the other family. Yeah, you know, that's got to always be looming with Paul. He knows at some point he's going to lose Paul to a family. To a family that we're talking Paul, about the uh, ultimate ultimate family guy. Paul's not going to live with him forever. Right. And so when we talk about the engagement, that may have triggered this idea that he's going to lose him because people go and 
dump him when they need other families, you know? That's right. That's right. I mean, we're getting very, very deeply into psychology, but it's just like we're trying to figure out what this pit of neediness is. And, you know, Yoko hasn't filled it. If John has some sort of nebulous need that we, you know, again, as we've said, probably stems from, you know, from not getting enough love as a child that everybody knows. John has talked extensively about it. I think maybe there's like a um, like a blurring of boundaries and a blurring of lines and just sort of too many needs converging at once. Yeah. I mean, that's how I see it, too, is that, you know, that John at this point seems to want to have everything in one person, creative partner, willing to go and do things on their own as a couple. And, you know, so there's layers of what he needs. I, I think maybe like over time, Paul just kind of bore the brunt of a lot of different needs of John's. Right. And he, he, <laughs> you know what I mean? Totally. And I think he met a lot of them too. I mean, it's, it's interesting because this is such a taboo topic. And yet these guys talk about sort of facetiously and, but they, they talk about how they were so in love and the, you know, that's how Paul and John talk about each other as spouses. Like there's a lot of romance put around their relationship. So I think it's not out of the realm of possibility that somehow Paul is mixed up in this need of John's and that somehow he's wrapped up in this song. Right. And of course, we, we do have the anecdote from Yoko that John did consider proposing an affair to Paul. Right. So if he thought about proposing it, but he didn't, that would very possibly leave a lingering question in his mind, right? Like this sort of never-ending kind of what-if scenario. You know, even if he talked himself out of it or decided it was stupid or, you know, told himself to move on and, like, decided to move on, it could still be a nagging thought that doesn't go away. Right. Especially for someone like John Lennon, who is used to indulging every impulse and well, both John and Paul are used to indulging every impulse and get what they want. You know, this, even if this was self edited, one could see how, you know, you, you always want what you can't have. It's so taboo to suggest this, that to imply that Paul may be in John's songs. Yeah. And I think part of that is it's super, super taboo to, to, even suggest that John might have thought about anything other than Yoko in 1968 or 69, or for the rest of his life, for that matter. Right. Like, right. He never had another thought about anything. Even even pre-Yoko, now they're starting to say the songs were about her. It's kind of insane. Like, <laughs> that doesn't make any sense at all. Right, it's right. Like, and, and, and the thing is, there's no such taboo with Paul and Linda. You know, like, no, the, even though we're suggesting that, hey, maybe Paul, maybe Paul is mixed up in this song. Maybe part of John's obsession it has to do with Paul and the situation they're in. It seems almost taboo to do that, but it's not like the fandom has any issue whatsoever doing the exact same thing to Paul's songs. 
or the, I mean, forget the fandom, the, or the authorship. Oh, yeah. I mean, Gould, Gould straight up suggested that, you know, it's it's like almost impossible to read Oh Darling without reading, <laughs> you know, John into the, into the song. Right, it's right. Like, right. No, oh, it's possible. You just didn't want to. It's just your opinion. Yes, yes. I mean, and you see that a lot of people a lot of authors or people in the fandom will give pay lip service to Paul and Linda's relationship. But then they shamelessly theorize that his songs are actually totally about John. And I think they do this because they believe in the importance of their relationship. But there seems to be this double standard. I think a lot of traditional Beatle people, authors, um, jean jackets, whatever, they do love the John and Paul love story. They do love it. They just, um, for whatever reason, are comfortable talking about Paul's love for John, and they are uncomfortable talking about John's love for Paul. And I don't think it's because, I think it's because Paul, John was so aggressive. Yeah. So aggressive. So adamant. I only thought about Yoko. I only thought about Yoko. I was over the band. Yeah. Yeah. I'd moved on. I swear to God, I've moved on. Right. They didn't actually pay attention to his actions of talking about it in every interview throughout the 70s. They just took what he said. Well, and nobody factors in the fact that John lies. Like, he he lies about never thinking about Paul when we have the receipts. Yeah. It's like, John... We know that you filled journals about Paul. They like people have read them, dude. Yeah, and it's and and like I don't care what he's writing, and I don't care if he's like, oh yeah, but he's being critical, and he <laughs> says he doesn't like his single or whatever. That doesn't matter. He still filled journals about Paul. Thought about him every day. Yeah, wrote about him every day. Right. If I'm doing that about my ex, my ex husband, right? If I'm <laughs> for the next ten years, journals for the next ten years, I'm not over him. Right. Newsflash. Also, know? it probably suggests that you were really, really into him at some point. Like the feelings run really deep. Yeah, I agree with you that the, the fandom loves the John Paul relationship, but it seems to be like they're comfortable with Paul loving John and John loving Yoko. But I think that that's a huge core fallacy because the tension only exists if it's working both ways, you know? Mm -hmm. And John Lennon is not the kind of person that would be interested in somebody that was only chasing him. If that happens, he just wouldn't be a factor to John. And he is, which means to me, that the idea that Paul is writing just to John and, you know, just pining for John is insane, that it's working both ways. We just have not examined it both ways. I think some of it stems back to what we discussed before, which is that people go, oh, Paul's writing sad songs. Yep. Clearly he's sad about John Lennon who's leaving. Right. And they're like, well, John isn't singing sad songs. So he must be only thinking about Yoko. Right. Totally ignoring the other periods right around then where he was writing sad songs. It's like, it's like <laughs> right. Paul's, yeah. Paul's timing coincided much better with telling this story. Never mind the fact that John's writing really sad songs in 68. You know, he wants to die. And then late 70, John's writing, you know, heartbroken songs. And so I, I, I just don't know how the fandom thinks that this is a, a viable relationship if only one of them is into it. That's right. That's right. <laughs> you know? It's ridiculous. It's like, that's not the Beatles. I think that's why we're looking into the breakup, the relationship of the two, because that is fundamentally 
as much as I love George and Ringo and value what they bring to the table, Paul and John are the axis. It's the creative tension between them that makes up. And and literally everybody knows, everybody in Beetle World knows that it's like, it is that potent, combustible chemistry between them. And that does not exist if one person worships the other one and the other one is disinterested. Right. That's that does not create no, chemistry. That's basically no chemistry. And these guys remain they they have chemistry until John dies. And that's right. I think that there, these songs exist for Paul. It's just that the fandom just doesn't want to hypothesize that maybe they're for Paul in the same way that they feel extremely free to do that about Paul songs. It's, it's true. Well, it's like there's no pushback to the idea that Paul loved John very much. So People are comfortable doing it. They feel entitled, even to go overboard. Yeah, to very romanticized. Yes, to even like songs that Paul writes about Linda. They're just like, well, whatever. That's about she's not important. But it's like there's something sacrilegious about even suggesting that that John thought of anything besides Yoko. Right, and and I think that's ridiculous. Why is it sacrilegious? It's like a fairy tale. And, you know, in some ways, it mo- it goes into that superhero story of John Lennon. You know, fell mm-hmm. in love, mm-hmm. dropped everything else in his life for for Yoko, and that's all he thought about twenty four seven. And we're not allowed to question that. That's right. But the thing is that as soon as you do question it, it opens up a million other questions. Particularly, like, why does this exist? Like, why do you need this ironclad defense around everything you do, say, and write? Yes. And so now that we're opening it up and saying, look, we believe that you guys were a great couple, but we don't believe in the fairy tale. And we think that there is a lot of evidence to suggest that John was still heavily invested in Paul for the rest of his life. And so where does that fit in? We're actually trying to go outside of the, you know, some of the core assumptions and mythology and look at what John actually said. His comments about this were about drowning and, and screaming for help. And so that's why we're looking into it. So the idea that this is about John being sexually obsessed with Yoko to the point of insanity. Mm-hmm. Um, let's just pressure test that for a second. We know that in the Bedins, right after their wedding, they laid in bed in pajamas next to each other for a week, platonically, which is a right. little bit unusual for newlyweds. <laughs> right. John called them angels yeah. in the bed in. Right, right. He was kind of insulted by the fact that everyone assumed that they were going to be sexual, Sexy. you know. And yeah. and he said instead that what they found was <laughs> what he calls them angels. They made an, a naked album cover called Two Versions. Yep. Because they felt like children. Or just a little boy and a little girl. Yeah. Right. John said about Yoko, it's it's just handy to fuck your best friend. Again, sort of underscoring this idea that she is his best friend first oh, and his lover second. Right. Definitely that the compliment paid is she's my best friend. And <laughs> But, uh, you know, but that's the main compliment there. But but definitely, if you're saying it's just handy, 
that is co- that contradicts the idea of being so sexually obsessed that it's Absolutely. driving you to madness. <laughs> exactly. So those are in direct contradiction to right. each other. This is a convenience. You right. know, this is an added bonus. Now he doesn't need a best friend and someone. And a girlfriend. He's got them all in one. Right. It is convenient. Even more pointed, uh, Yoko said that she used to tell John, I think you're a fag, um, when they started living together. So again, um, that's not probably something that you would say to somebody who's so sexually obsessed with you, it's driving him insane. Right. I mean, you know, if that's the case, I don't think that idea would even enter your mind. Yeah. If a man was so sexually obsessed with me, he was just begging for sex 24 fucking 7, I might think any number of things, but... But not that. Your gay isn't one of them. These are also things that they told us. This is not... We are not, you know, being gossipy here. These are things that right. they themselves That's what I'm saying. Said. This, is, this isn't uh, things that other people have said about them. This isn't gossip. These are statements they made for publication. Like, literally all we're doing is talking about them. So the point of this exercise is not to diminish or judge John and Yoko as a couple. The point is that... The idea of John being sexually obsessed with his wife to the point of insanity is pretty much a media invention. You know, John and Yoko instead emphasize a mental connection, both contemporaneously and over time. John repeatedly describes his sexual access to Yoko as convenient. You know, he does it again in in 1972. And so the only reason we're discussing this is because we're trying to understand John's mindset and all the contributing factors in the Beatles breakup. It's not because we're nosy about their sex life. Like, I don't care. Right. And I think (laughs) we're trying to deconstruct what has been said about the song from authors versus what John has said the connection to the song was, which really is, is about distress the single-minded obsession that that's been consuming him since india may or may not be sex with yoko also if you are horny for your wife how's that a problem yeah why would it be frustrating yeah well Which, nice perfect that you be- exactly that's what exa- i mean what then that's not problematic why would that that's great if you're obsessed with your own wife yeah. i mean that's a good thing it's a really best case scenario i mean you happen to be obsessed with the person that you're with fantastic right so i don't i don't know that that interpretation doesn't really make any sense to me it's like it this if that's the case then, then the song has no conflict well and that's the thing is that jo- all these songs reflect musically as well as lyrically a deep frustration right in a darkness. To my mind, yes. Okay, how about this? What if the song isn't sexual? What if it's just about an emotional, like a really deep emotional need? Okay, well, it, if all right, let's play that out then. So does that mean it could be about Julia or Julian? Could it be about his mom or his, or his son? <laughs> I want you so bad, it's driving me mad, it's driving me mad, yeah! <laughs> I really, really, really don't like to think about it, 
yeah. either of those as the subject. So, so I, I guess that is the litmus <laughs> test that no, there is a sexual element to the song. Yeah, I think I think we can eliminate that as a possibility. <laughs> yeah, it's it's interesting because it's just like because it's a Beatles song, it's never given that much weight. Like it's just what you know, John's cool, heavy, you know, it, rock it's total. Song. That's that's absolutely a hundred percent the in, the artistic analysis of this song is John is cool. You know, it's almost like nobody really takes it into a dark space because that's not really where the Beatles live is in darkness. But mm-hmm. fundamentally, the song is dark and it is heavy. And, you know, and really and truly very little serious attention is paid to it because it is so easily written off as just horny. 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 from Yoko. Exactly. So the overriding theme of this song would be like frustration and obsession and yep. obsession, which are mm-hmm. themes with a lot of his songs from 1968, as we've gone through mm-hmm. in this breakup series. Those themes are present in 1968 and 1969 while Lennon McCartney is falling apart. And they are not themes that recur after the Beatles breakup. There's disillusionment, you know, for all the people that are like, Plastic Ono Band. I mean, that's much more disillusionment. Yeah. Um, anger. Sadness. Sadness. Grief. Exactly. Grief. I, but, but yes, this idea of obsession, frustration, and need, yes. and extreme need are the themes throughout 68 and 69. So if I have a new girlfriend who I'm having sex with, all the time like at will yeah why am why would i be writing songs about frustration and obsession and not like obsession with something that's out of reach right and that makes no sense that does not hold up to any intelligent scrutiny no and also this notion of being in pain and drowning and asking for help why are these themes ignored you know is there something else in his life that is that he's thinking about obsessively that's frustrating him or another issue in his life that's obsessing him yeah and like maybe whatever turmoil paul's going through is also like not in a vacuum well, and that's an excellent point, is that, it, you know, the way that it's portrayed right now is that it's an entirely one-sided um, experience where only Paul is going through t- turmoil. And John, <laughs> any turmoil he has has to do with just Yoko and his obsession there. And it's insane to it, think that this right. world-famous partnership where John and John talks about Paul for the rest of his life to suggest that this wasn't extremely meaningful and, and important to him. So what do you think about the lyrics? She's so heavy, which which we know that John specifically said that's about Yoko. Well, you know, there's the two definitions of it, the, of heavy. There is the notion of being deep, you know, she's deep, man. Yeah. And then there is the uh, idea of, you know, the literal definition of it being heavy as in a weight and so it you know it could mean either of those or both when you look at it combined with the music I mean it's all the music and the repetition of this lyric is almost hypnotic it sort of conveys the notion that John is hypnotized or 
the circular motion of it just kind of going into oblivion? I mean, taking John and Yoko out of the equation yep. for a second, like mm-hmm. like just listening to this as an independent work, like mm-hmm. assuming I don't know anything about and I have no judgments about them as a couple mm-hmm. or people or whatever. If I heard, like hearing she's so heavy, it sounds kind of like she's she's dragging him under, not in a good way. Yeah, it sounds like a descent to me. Either he's being pulled away, 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 or it sounds like a descent into like a something. downward spiral that she's dragged, like it's like a Sid and Nancy situation, right? Or whatever. Like she's yeah. right, right. I think a downward spiral, a descent into something, you know, is the the idea that is conveyed to me through this music. I mean, it's like mad and dark and. That's what makes it amazing. But it's not happy. It's not like he is, this is not like Hey Jude, where he is going to a better place, into bliss. This is kind of a descent into darkness, you know? I agree. And the main thing for me, the thing the thing that I feel like is missing from every, you know, Beatle book or whatever that I read which I think is really important part of the song is that I think those two thoughts are disconnected to me. I want you so bad. I want you. I want you. I want you so bad. It's driving me mad. Da 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 do 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 do. It's like a little groove. Yep. It's like kind of sexy and like they're kind of jamming and yep. they're kind of into it. And then all of a sudden it's like, boom, she's so, and it's like everything stops. And then the downward spiral begins. Yeah. Yeah. It's true that there's, not much analysis on trying to put those together or try to understand, are they two different ideas? Because, you know, if you take them as two different ideas, which sometimes I do, that there is something obsessing John and then something pulling him away from it. I mean, let's, okay, just taking taking out any sort of sexual element mm-hmm. between John and Paul, like a, whatever, like an imaginary hypothetical affair or any of that kind of stuff. Yep. Let's just say, let's, let's just basing it in their, their own musical partnership yep. where they get along and it both turns them on, right? As, yep. they, as they famously have said yes. many, many yes. times. Playing together turns them on, right? So if that's, I mean... Definitely. We talked about it at the beginning of the episode. Ham- Hamilton pointed it out that John is being pulled in two directions, right? Yes. One with his band and his partner that he loves to play with, that he gets in a good groove with, that it turns him on musically. And then he is being pulled in the opposite direction by his wife. Absolutely. Who is, who is pulling him away from the Beatles. And this could be one of the one of the central tensions of that song. I want you. I want to be here. I love to play this music. I, I fucking. I love the Beatles, man. Right. I love. I love them. Right. But on the other hand, you know. Right. No, I think. I think that thematically, that's really what makes the song interesting. Is this idea that there's this conflict. And I think you're right to bring in Hamill. That's why we found it intriguing, is he is being pulled. But it also suggests that his, his, and and again, taking anything sexual out, the interest in Paul, there's such chemistry. And other people have suggested that, that that wasn't a problem 
of them. Like they were almost right. burning up. It's not like there was yeah. no chemistry between them. So that if we take away everything that John said afterwards about being disinterested, if we forget that and suggest that maybe the problem wasn't disinterest, maybe there was a great passion between them and that the tension that is driving me crazy and maybe the solution is just to be pulled away by this other force right it's like it's like that descent takes his mind off of yes the other problem yes and it's kind of like if this if it was unsolvable with paul and it's not a lack of chemistry if there's some impasse that is driving him crazy driving them crazy that maybe he makes the decision that it's just that he's going to turn his eyes somewhere else. You know, that's just like distract move, you know? Yeah. Well, and for all this, for all this nonsense about like, John was so decisive and he, you know, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I know, brain, I know. You know, he decisively decided that he was going <laughs> to not bring any songs to let it be. Cause that was his management <laughs> style. <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> and it's oh, like God. kind of the way John is coping. It's like it's true, you know. To our point earlier, to what we discussed earlier, if you looked at Paul's songs versus John's songs, you sort of get the sense that wow, Paul's really going through a lot. But I think that that suggests that Paul's actually proce- processing what they're going through, and John's way of dealing is not to deal, to, to deny, to distract. Like, okay, I'm going to talk about peace. I'm going to, you know, focus on Yoko. I'm going to just sit here in bed and watch. You know, I'm going to take heroin. It's like anything but focus on. Well, and here's another thing that nobody talks about is it's like, yeah, Paul's going through something, but he's channeling it all into some of the most beloved songs in the history of popular music. He's coming out of it with a body of work that endures that endures and benefits us all that's the thing is that the story sort of becomes about feeling badly for paul during this period (laughs) versus versus being like wow it's amazing that he took this emotion and created something so beautiful out of it you know that's probably more effective than taking heroin to deal with it that's that's what i'm saying it's like why are we feeling bad for paul it's not like paul's contributions from from 1969 were like you know like just like whiny gibberish right right they were like some of the most like beautifully crafted wonderfully composed songs ever yes and also i would say that kind of like he's going through something it's sad he's processing it but how, like, what the fuck? Like, taking heroin is really sad, too, actually. To me, oh, that suggests a lot of pain as well. And these are just different ways. And that's the thing, is that we only look at Paul and acknowledge that his pain is connected to the situation, whereas John's apparently has uh, no connection. Paul and John had a discussion about what was going to end Abbey Road, and John for a while advocated for this to be the end of the album. He's like, um, okay, so you want to write the ending to our story, to the Beatles story? And make it happy. Yes. And make it, yeah, exactly. You want to go out on a high note and be classy about shit and be like, and then they lived happily ever after? Yeah. 
uh-uh. This is the reality. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, because the reality is, is that they're battling. But beyond that, John and Yoko are heavily into heroin over the summer. You know, their supplier says that he's delivering it in the studio to Yoko in bed. This is prior to him writing cold turkey. So I think we can assume that they are addicted. Yeah. And so probably to John, this is more an accurate reflection of how they're going out right now. You know, can I say for any, for anyone who's trying to like downplay their heroin use at this time, first of all, you're stupid and you're a fucking liar. So pull your head out of your ass. Okay. But secondly, like if, if your drug supplier actually lives in your house with you and he comes to the studio to give you drugs, how bad do you need those fucking drugs, right? Because it's like, <laughs> they can't even wait till they get home. They live with that guy. Yeah. They, she was like, no, you're going to bring the heroin to me right now, buddy. Deliver it to fucking Abbey Road. I don't give a shit. Tell George Martin you have a heroin delivery. <laughs> get in here right now. Why would you have it even delivered to the studio unless you really needed to fix, like, then? And and also, like, how trashy is that? Like, can you please not have heroin delivered to Abbey Road? Why are they well, not called out for that? Yeah, I mean, the, the, even the drug, his name is Dan Richter, says that he felt very uncomfortable delivering them heroin in the studio when they're, like, recording Abbey Road. You know, it's just what? like it's kind of a sacred space, you know? Why is that not considered a violation? Yes, and yes, I know that the Beatles smoked secret joints when they were recording whatever, you know, rubber sole on up. It's just like nobody wants to touch this subject. And the thing is, is that I like there's such a taboo around it, but it's just like I don't think it's that horrible to talk about. They had a drug Uh, addiction. Lots uh, of people had drug addictions, you know? Yeah, like a lot of famous people had heroin problems at the time yeah bob dylan james taylor keith richard Richard. yeah yeah Yeah. (laughs) eric clapton marianne faithful so it's like it's not that horrible like let's just put it out in the open and say that unfortunately this is what happened and he wrote a song about it it's not fair to talk about paul being bossy or anything when when his partner (laughs) is a heroin addict like can you imagine having to deal with that and, and his partner's wife is a heroin addict, and, and she has a bed in your studio while you're trying to make the Beatles' last album. I can't imagine anyone on any podcast or whatever, fan site or author, defending Linda McCartney building a bed in the Abbey Road studio and getting heroin delivered to her. Like, can you even imagine anyone? Nope. It's like, realistically, yeah, we're dealing with somebody who admitted to tying himself to a chair to withdraw. This is coming from John. Yeah. And and it would have really impacted the dynamic of the group. And so we're not hitting on this to try and beat up on John or anything like that. It's just like one of your members is a heroin addict. It's a big deal. You think this, uh, the song could be about heroin also? Yeah, well, I mean, in some ways, I do think this works because I want to. I mean, that that is co- kind of the core definition of addiction. You know, you want something so badly it's driving you mad. Yeah. It sounds to me like kind of the the repeat 
obsession of an of an addict. Um, you know, it's especially from what I understand the heroin addiction is like. And then the second part of the song could well be the release once you are on the heroin. I think there's other things. There's there's so much emotion. It, it seems a little too personal to be just about heroin, but I just wonder if there's elements of his experience that are being infused into this song. Hmm. And Paul, in Emmerich's take, he portrays Paul as being on the outside of the song and being kind of down about this song, which is confusing because Paul actually does phenomenal bass, like phenomenal bass work yeah, in this song. Yeah, he really does. Yep. And so clearly he likes it. He adds little interesting bass bits that add dimension to the song as it repeats. You know, he knows, he's such a good musician, he knows that he needs to mix it up a little bit so it doesn't become dull as they repeat and repeat. And so if there's something about the song he doesn't like, it's not that he doesn't like it musically. Yeah. Be interesting if anyone ever asked him anything. I'd love to hear what he has to say about the song. Right. And Paul knows John's doing heroin. I mean, he may be just worried about John. He knows Klein's a bad guy. Again, you know, people are so willing to believe that Paul adores John, but they aren't willing to give him credit for caring about John. And, of course, there's the other side, too, that if Paul knows that Yoko's pulling John away from him and John is using her to walk away from him. You know what I mean? Like, if you're Paul and something happened between them or some impasse happened between them, I can imagine that would be devastating. Yeah, it's like, um, I'm destroying my life, and I want you to sit here and listen to it. Over and over and over again. Yeah, like, you're sad. You're sad. Um, but, you know, there will be an answer, let it be. You, you don't sound that fucking sad. You sound yeah. actually like you're going to be just fine. Huh? Oh, oh, and there's going to be a light that shines on you? Well, good for you. Okay, so I Want You, She's So Heavy is the last song the Beatles record on August 20th. They finish that in, they finish that session in the afternoon and then spend the evening deciding on the track order for Abbey Road. And then that's it for these sessions as a, as a band. Um, Paul comes in the next day, August 21st, to work on the crossfades of the medley with George and Jeff. Right. And then they get together as a group on the 22nd, August 22nd, to do their last photo session as a group. And, you know, we have some video, Linda's video from that day. So those are the beautiful uh, photos from Tittenhurst. And then following that, George Martin continues to finalize the album with his production team and we know that Paul comes in on the 25th for final touches and, you know, to oversee everything. And then on that day, it's done. Of course, Paul is involved until the end. You know, I think that that reflects how much he's managing this whole project, musical, musically and otherwise. You know, he comes in, signs off with George Martin, Jeff Emmerich, and then boom, it's out. Also, on August 25th, John Lennon ties himself to a chair 
to go cold turkey from his heroin habit. And then three days after that, on August 28th, Mary McCartney is born. Just a little bit of context for this murky time. In this murky time, we could all use a little bit of context. (laughs) September 26th is when the album actually comes out. So what does Abbey Road tell us about where the guys are at? What's the state of Lennon-McCartney at this point? Because they did collaborate on Come Together. Mm -hmm. They did collaborate on Sun King with lyrics and and writing. Yep. Um, They worked well, you know, with the end and the guitar. They worked well on You Never Give Me Your Money. Mm -hmm. John did, uh, John contributed backing vocals. Well, as we discussed in the earlier part of the episode, I mean, from John's perspective, it might seem like Paul has delivered his notice. I mean, that's how I would take it. If, if Paul was my partner yep. and I listened to Abbey Road, yep. I would definitely <laughs> get that message loud and Absolutely. clear. Absolutely. Like, holy shit. Okay. Yeah. So whether or not, you know, Paul meant to tender his resignation he is certainly acknowledging that things are ending yes. on some level. Yeah. In fact, we found a, a passage in Ian McDonald's book, Revolution in the Head, um, that we thought was insightful about the situation. Neither one of us agree with um, most of the things that he says in that book, but and neither does Paul, for the record. Right. But, um, right. But there are there are some good parts in it. Right. And then we thought that this was a good passage. So he writes, acting as both the Beatles musical director and stand in manager for them during their final three years. McCartney was deeply shaken when the others drafted in the street fighting Alan Klein to claw their finances back into shape. Only dear friend, his song of shocked hurt at Lennon's venomous post Beatles attacks on him conveys a sadder reproach than the opening verses of You Never Give Me Your Money in which, a year ahead of Lennon, he acknowledges that the dream is over. So the reason we're highlighting um, this is is for that last line. A year ahead of Lennon, he acknowledges that the dream is over. You know, that's, that's sort of what we're reading into what Paul is saying, whether subconsciously or consciously. Right. And I think there's there's a difference between Paul not wanting the dream to be over and like absolutely not, not not wanting to lose his friends yes and not wanting to lose his band i mean that's that's different from acknowledging and knowing deep down like we we spoke about the liberty bell that occurred in may of the year you know before they even started recording this album so yeah you know and like we said it paul's messages of of letting go and saying goodbye are all throughout this album. Yeah. Which surely John didn't miss. Right. And, you know, if John is unsure, because at this point they're not communicating well. So if John is unsure about how Paul is feeling, he may potentially read into this as, well, this is what he wants, or even subconsciously, this is what he's saying. I just think that it would be a message Right. I mean, the thing is, is that sometimes people talk about the Beatles breakup as if all of a sudden it came out of nowhere in September at the divorce meeting. Yeah. But in reality, like they've been talking about 
whether or not they should continue or break up all year long, like in the get back sessions. Yeah, they're talking about it openly. Yeah, well, it's interesting because Paul does say it was an explosion in the end. And I think the thing is, it simmered for so long and it could have gone either way, you know, and and in the end it blew up. But but it didn't have to. For all of this bullshit about John being decisive and, you know, having left the band mentally in 1963, you know, Mm -hmm. whatever. (laughs) <laughs> he, he, right. he, he is dithering throughout the year it, it's not like oh why couldn't paul paul couldn't see that like john was so over it and he'd moved on and right, he was right. only wanted to be a peace activist with yoko or whatever it's like well because he still got two feet in the beatles he does you know? he does i yes and I think that he is a bit of a pendulum swinging from one side to the other all year. Like he's all in, yeah. he's excited, and then things don't go the way he wants them to, you know, like yeah. fundamentally. And he's like, fuck this shit. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but I mean, it, it's not necessarily that he doesn't want to be there. It's that the situation is difficult and he can't quite right. work it out. And that's a different thing because fundamentally, I think these two guys recognize they still care a lot. And so, you know, while they still care a lot, there's still a there there, you know? Yeah. So. And, and, and John also has a wife who's pulling him away who wants, you know, she doesn't want Paul to be John's partner. She wants to be John's partner. Right. She's like, fuck Lennon McCartney. So Paul's getting real mixed messages from him. And I was like, fuck the Beatles one day. And then he, then he burst through the door. This is my band. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> On the other hand, Paul has been, I think, outwardly much more loyal and um, consistent about his desire for them to continue. And yet he delivers a, a, an album that probably sends extremely mixed messages to John, too. The, on the one hand, it's like the please don't go. And, you know, if you want to read John into Oh Darling, which I think there are shades of him in there. Um, But on the other hand, then he's saying goodbye. It's over. There's no saving this. You know, so they're both communicating mixed messages, I think, at this point, which makes it really hard. Yeah. Yeah. And And again, like you said, if they're not if they're not being transparent on just a normal level of like human beings talking to each other like if they're all if everything they say to each other is like coded into songs yes. and all that sort oh of and, they, and they have telepathy to and, too right oh right, right. And, they, and they've got telepathy and they've got i they have an eye love language or some bullshit <laughs> right. right so they right, can right. also speak through their eyes right like they have all these like dumb nonverbal ways to communicate because because they think their relationship is at a different level well, yeah, of course, because they're communicating on the astral plane or yes, whatever. Yes, yes. But, um, again, you you know, it's easy to see how that dis- devolves into miscommunication and, and hurt feelings and mixed signals and whatever. Yeah. And, I mean, one of, the th- one of the things that we're trying to reconcile here is the fact that when you look at this album, it's really like Paul is saying goodbye here. But at the same time, we know he was very upset about the end and clearly doesn't want it to end. So it's really reconciling what's going on. What does he want? Why is he doing it? You know, why is he communicating these messages? Paul might feel like he's being clear to John. This is not what I want. But since you're giving me no choice. But at the same time, he might think that he's being clear that you could 
we could turn this ship around. He's said many times, and he insists, and to an obsessive level, he tells us that he didn't want to break the Beatles up, that it was John who left and not him. Right, right. I mean, he. we know that he does that because he has been labeled for so long as the um, villain in this. So part of that is he's very yeah. single-minded about this message about not being blamed for that. So we take... We take that point. I think this is where it gets murky. It's like if you have to to use this to use the married couple analogy to continue yep. to because I think it honestly it's the only way to talk about John and Paul and it's like it's the reason why it's those are the words that they chose because it's the it's the only way to talk about it to make it make sense. I think authors are they portray it as if but Paul wanted his his husband to stay no matter what. And I think Paul's just kind of like, well, no, what I wanted was for him to clean his act up and to get off the heroin and to knock it off with the side piece and to, and to do some work like we used to. Well, yeah. I mean, this is, this is, which is different. Yeah. I mean, (laughs) what we've said is that what he wants is the person he married. Exactly. He, he still holds hope that that person is still there. He doesn't like the person that's with him right now. And that's why he is starting to say goodbye because it's not a good situation for him. But I think he hasn't given up on that person that he loved so much when they got married. That's right. And I think John has been acting out for a really long time, but John won't say I want a divorce either. John does a lot of crazy stuff for like two years that Paul sort of puts up with because yeah. I think he he's not willing to let go of that marriage yet. He's like, I think they're still good in the marriage. I think we could sort it out if we want to. Right, right. You right. Know? He's very, very loyal to and still believes in the original love that they had. I mean, you got to give kudos to John has done a lot of work to get attention and to get the marriage back to what he wants it to be. Like all of this stuff that John's doing, to your point, he's not leaving. Yeah. He's he's put a lot of effort into provoking, getting attention, getting yeah. eyes back on him to make the marriage work in a way as well. I think it's like getting increasingly hard to for all of them to envision an arrangement that involves Paul and John and Yoko and Linda. Well, and Linda is an important one too, because I think that it's always talked about like John and Paul and Yoko. Well, Linda's as much of a factor in it too, because she bothers John. Any, any suggestion that Paul doesn't see the breakup coming is ludicrous. We know that he sees it coming. He said that he saw it coming. Like he knows. Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of like he can't stop it. He knows it's coming. And yet he still has hope. True to his character, he is holding out hope, and he doesn't probably want to be the first to to give up. Right, because he ultimately wants that, and fundamentally he was right to hope. Because as we'll demonstrate as we continue in the series, there were many opportunities for Paul to turn things around. But I think at this particular time, neither of them is happy. Mm-hmm. Although, you know, there's still plenty of heat, as we've said, plenty of emotion, but they also have a lot of anger towards each other. And I think resentment at the situation. 
So, you know, we do see a power struggle develop, but we think it's important to stipulate that this is a marriage rather than simply, you know, a, a business arrangement. Right. And the reason that we keep bringing that up is not to romanticize it, but it's to point out that it's not simply about money or just like who has more power in the boardroom or whatever. Right. It's also about negotiating emotional needs interpersonally within their relationship. But as every friendship or marriage is. Right. I think what's essential to notice here is that they're still fully engaged. You know, they're still, John's still maneuvering things. He's still playing games. Paul's reacting to the games. As long as they are both still in and engaged, you know, the game's still on. They're not over each other. Where we're leaving off here is actually probably the most dangerous time for them because it seems like whenever they finish a project, there's always, you know, they, they refer to this many times. They sort of say that, that leaves us in limbo. Like, what's the next thing? And I think that when Brian was there, he would have been really helpful because he was always planning stuff. You know, they had the yeah. security to know that, you know, Brian's going to come up with the next thing and we basically just go to, back to work when he tells us. But then Paul kind of provided that relationship after him, you know, making sure there was always another project. He knew for the group and the stability for there yeah. to be something on the horizon. But then what happens when Paul has said his grand goodbye? He's tapped out. He's about to have a child. And John, on the other hand, is increasingly spiraling. Well, you'll have to tune into our next episode to find <laughs> out. <laughs> now this like the chess yeah. game really starts now. Yeah. Shit gets real. Yeah. The mind games really go up to 11. That's <laughs> true. And everything that was probably set in motion in the spring of 68 is starting to come to fruition. But you know what? Like, I'm so excited to go through them because I don't know why, honestly, but like no one has ever really gone through them. I, I agree with you. I'm really excited to, too, because, again, you know, Paul gets asked about the breakup all the time. And to me, that just suggests it doesn't make sense. It doesn't like there is something that we're all like, yeah, okay, you told us that. No, can you please tell us the real answer? Like we would start <laughs> yeah, asking right. yes, if right. it made sense. Right. And so I think it's worth like, we have a point of view. I, yeah. I look forward to like going through with you. And it, it's very, it's going to be very exciting. I, yes. I, I'm, we're, this, we're all building up to this, people. This is what we've been building up for. It's going to be great. One final thing, the addition of Her Majesty being at the end, you know, even though it, it's like the end and it's sad, I just think it's it's so fitting for the Beatles to go out with a bit of a joke. They were always light and they were always funny. And the fact that it, this is kind of like a wink at the end is like so perfect. Exactly. Like that, Flip it over and start this album again. It was good. You know, I mean, you could refer, like they refer to a girl as, uh, you know, lady or girl or, you know, like Lady Madonna or just some sort of name, you know, to call a girl. Mm. It could be that too, you know, like Her Majesty, you know, worshipping your girlfriend or your wife. Yes, I see. So it's not to, not to be taken too seriously. Not really, you know, you can if you like. Yeah. I don't. Yes.
Hi, everyone. This is Diana. If you are enjoying listening to this podcast, please leave a review in Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. It will really help other people find the podcast. And I love reading reviews, mostly if they are good. So please leave a good review. Um, also, you can follow the podcast on Twitter, Facebook, Tumblr, Instagram, all under the name One Sweet Dream Podcast. And you can email us at onesweetdreampodcast at gmail.com. Also, please check out Another Kind of Mind podcast. You can follow Another Kind of Mind in all social channels as Acom Podcast or on Instagram as Another Kind of Mind. You can also reach Another Kind of Mind at acompodcast at gmail.com. Thanks. Look forward to hearing from you. Take care. Bye.